As we come to the preaching of God's holy word this morning, I encourage you, if you have brought your Bibles, to take up your copy of God's word and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. The message, being light in a darkened world, will be coming from verses 14 through 16, but in order that we might have a little more context, I'm going to back up to verse 1 of chapter 2 and begin reading. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gracious Father in heaven, it is so very easy to see from your word that we just read that this is instruction that applies to us and is very much needed by everyone who knows Jesus as Lord of his life. Help us, O God, by the presence of your Holy Spirit to take this exhortation to the church at Philippi and make it our marching orders to the church here in Coble. Show us our error and our weakness and make us to understand our very great need of the Savior and to also rejoice in his finished work on our behalf all the more. Do this, we pray, for we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes we wonder, at least I wonder, what was the early church like, those early days? What, what was their outward testimony to the watching world around them? How was the church viewed and seen and understood by the pagan unbelievers in their culture? 
And while we obviously can't bear firsthand witness to the early church, we do, in fact, have an interesting account from someone who could. Lucian was a second century pagan. Yes, he was a pagan satirist from the region of modern-day Turkey. And he was no fan of the emerging Christian church that he bore witness to in his day. As a well-known practitioner of rhetoric, he frequently ridiculed and made fun of the superstitions and the religious practices of the culture he saw emerging around him. And in his satire entitled, The Passing of Peregrinus, we get a glimpse into the how he viewed the early Christian church. Now, the title character of this story was a charlatan who pretended, who pretended to be a Christian and, and eventually became a t- teacher in a Christian community there in Asia Minor. And this character eventually landed himself in prison for his professed faith. And in doing so, he soon became the center of attention from members of the church. First thing every morning, Lucian wrote, you would see a crowd of old women, widows, and orphans waiting outside the prison to bring him all sorts of food. In fact, Lucian went on to write, Christians are always quick off the mark when one of them gets into trouble like this. In fact, they ignore their own interests completely. And why do they do this? Well, Lucian explained in his, to his pagan audience the Christian's lawgiver by whom he means Christ, has convinced them that once they stop believing in Greek gods and start worshiping that crucified sage of theirs and living according to his laws, that they are all each other's brothers and sisters. Coming from a pagan author who is not at all well disposed to Christianity, would you agree that this is a remarkable testimony of the way in which many early Christian communities were actually being salt and light in a dark pagan world. It would seem that this satire is a clear testimony of the direct application of verse 4 we just read a moment ago. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. If this is indeed an accurate testimony of the character of some parts of the early church, then what is your testimony? What is our testimony of being light? What does a watching world think of Heritage Church? And after we leave today and head out into the week ahead, I would I would like for each of us, according to our ability, to return to this text from Philippians 2 and regularly ask ourselves these questions. Am I taking heed to the Scripture's exhortation? How can I completely and specifically apply the text to my life? How often do I find myself complaining, murmuring under my breath or grumbling? Why am I so prone to arguing and disputing? Why is my ministry service so often accompanied by doubts and hesitation and imagining the motivations of others or maybe even being worried about how I will be perceived? 
Am I being gentle, patient, and harmless? Is there any way in which I am bringing shame or dishonor to the name of Christ by my words, by my countenance, my actions, or even even my thoughts? And so as we go through this message, I hope you will even add your own questions for introspection to this list. And so looking at the text before us in verses 14 through 16, we will consider Paul's exhortation to the Philippian church under three headings. First, we will see the what and the how of this exhortation. Second, we will consider the why. And finally, we will briefly consider the mission that undergirds the entire exhortation. And so point number one, the what and the how of this exhortation. So take a look with me, if you will, back to verse 14 of chapter 2. As we begin reading here, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Can we just do a full stop right here for a moment and consider the scope? The scope of this exhortation, of this command, of this imperative. Do all things. All things. So let's make a quick list of what's excluded, right? Nothing. Nothing is excluded. Perhaps, but perhaps, you know, we got to get our good exegetical hats on here. This is one of those translation issues, right? Nope. The KJV, the NASB, the ESV, LSB, RSV, ASV, they all translate this, all things. That's what the Greek word pos means. But, but to be completely transparent, there is some variation in, in the translations. Neither the NIV nor the CSB, CSV, CSB translate this as all things, but instead they translate it as everything. That's, that's comforting, isn't it? And so how are we to do all things? We are to do all things without complaining and disputing. This is the how we are to keep in front of everything we do. This is our ministry, how we are to do our ministry service and how it's to be characterized. This is to be the character of our testimony to each other and to the watching world. The first part of this how is given as without complaining, and it carries the sense of without grumbling or without murmuring under our breath. If we were to borrow a psychological term for this, we might say maybe that we are to do all things without any attending passive-aggressive words, behaviors, or thoughts. <coughs> Murmuring and grumbling, probably words that capture the meaning better than the word complaining here in the way we usually use complaining. So what is that? This is when we go about our activity or our duty with an inward displeasure and a bad attitude. Perhaps you have heard or maybe even said, I may have to do this, but I don't have to like it. Right? Have you heard that? Have you heard someone say that? Have you said it? And I would contend that this is the attitude that often arises when there is something else that we would rather be doing. Or we don't like how we have been instructed to do something. Or we don't like who has asked us to do something. Or we think there is someone else who is better equipped or has more time. 
or the timing is less than ideal, or the weather is inconvenient, or it is costly. I don't mind being generous, just not that generous. And the list could go on and on. There is something that springs up automatically without any effort or thought. And as such, it is like a bad habit that is hard to break. And the second part of this how is given as without disputing, without heated discussion or argumentation or even internal debate. This is the more active aggressive side of the equation. And if we consider both the passive and the active sides of this, we see that it covers the whole spectrum of personalities and dispositions that you can find among all God's people. Disputers are those who don't receive instruction well. They readily find a problem with how things are to be done, which in turn can lead to inactivity or a delay in execution. They tend to see their way as the better way, or maybe that there is no way that is the good way. The point here is that we are to exclude an attitude that must challenge and must resist rather than joyfully submit to our brother and sister. The word used here speaks not just of spoken resistance, though it does include that, but it also has the, the idea of internal thoughts of the mind and heart. Such disputing devours the soul and ultimately has the power to destroy the church. Both grumblers and disputers spread their discontent to others. A grumbling attitude spreads like a virus within any group. Maybe you've experienced this on a work crew or in the office or even within the church. A disputing attitude can, can bring a group with great productivity potential to a dead stop and leave everyone discouraged. Seeds of doubt are spread, sides are chosen, and no one is happy. No wonder we have here the inspiration, the inspired exhortation from Paul to the Philippian church to do all things without grumbling or disputings. Such attitudes and hearts are destructive to the life and ministry and testimony of the body of Christ. Grumbling, murmuring, and complaining are a spirit as well as along with a disputing spirit, spring from a selfish and self-centered heart. The instruction here is that we are to not, <coughs> we are not to first please ourselves in what we do, nor are we to even primarily render our service to please or be seen by others. <coughs> when we serve, when we labor, when we do anything, we are to render that service as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. This applies even to bondservants, by the way. Paul gave this exhortation to the Colossian church. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Hearty service from sincere hearts as unto the Lord. This is the goal. This is the objective. This is every Christian's duty. 
And remember, there is no wiggle room left to only do some things without grumbling and disputing. How you do what you do matters. The motivation of your heart as you do all things matters. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The thoughts of your mind as you do all things matters. Your cheerful countenance or lack thereof as you do all things matters. For me, one of the most clarifying verses in Scripture touching on this is Proverbs 21.4. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. It's pretty straightforward. Think about that. Scripture tells us that work is good and necessary, right? Would you agree? And yet, if a man does not love God... Even his diligent plowing with perfectly straight rows is sin because he doesn't do it and even he can't do it as unto the Lord. But isn't it impossible to do things, to do all things without grumbling and disputing, you might ask? Isn't it difficult? Yes. Yes, it is, but with Jesus, all things are possible, and the command before us stands unshaken by all of our excuses. And we do have excuses. We're good at excuses, are we not? Even lame excuses. And so I turn now to the part of the message where I try very hard to step on everyone's toes. Okay, so go ahead and take your shoes off and let it hurt. Actually, this is too short a list to touch everybody, but I know I had a good conversation last night as I was thinking through this. Here are some of our lame excuses wherein whenever we consider the exhortation to do all things without grumbling, without grumbling, complaining, or arguing. I'm in a bad mood. How about that one? I'm easily triggered in this type of situation, so you need to walk on eggshells, okay? Okay? I'm just warning you. I didn't sleep well last night, and I'm just too tired to do this without grumbling. Or I never learned how to deal with this type of thing, and so I complain. Or I'm not smart enough. No one ever showed me how to mentally process this situation. At least I'm not as angry or grumbling as I could have been. If only they knew what I really thought. (laughs) you'd be proud of me for just grumbling a little bit. Or I can't control my emotions when I'm under stress. Or I forgot to take my herbal supplements. We all laughed at that one. I'm taking steroids. Man, they can make you mad. But it's an excuse. I'm not complaining, mind you. I'm not complaining. I'm just providing constructive criticism. They're never satisfied with the way I do things. Why wouldn't I complain? And here's where I really get in trouble. I'm pregnant. (laughs) Back off. 
So as we consider Paul's instruction, it is in no way, no way, a self-help or a power of positive thinking sort of exhortation. This is the process of sanctification at work. This is bringing our natural and our sinful inclinations, desires, and habits more and more under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the working out of our salvation in fear and trembling. At times, it is difficult, and it certainly runs counter to our sin nature. But remember, dear friends, you are not in this alone. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. God is not interested only in our outward behavioral conformity. Don't get that in your head. But He's also interested in the transformation and motivation of our hearts. And He has given us His Word. And He has given us His Spirit. And He has given us His people as a means of grace to bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ the good work He has already begun in you. And that brings us to point two, the why. Since Paul provides us a what and a how, the church is to do all things, it's no surprise that he also provides a why as well. And that, and that why is to be a certain kind of people. We are to be a certain kind of people, are we not? Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are to do all things without grumbling and disputing so that we may become blameless and harmless, so that we prove ourselves to be children of God, so that our distinctiveness from the crooked and perverse generation around us can easily see the difference, so that as this generation sees that distinctiveness, it is as clear as night is from day, so that the world can see the goodness of God as a bright and shining light among His people. And as we read earlier in the service, we can, we can see that Paul, at verse 15 here, is hearkening back to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 contains the song that Moses taught the people of Israel as they prepared to enter the Promised Land. And this is the biblical historical lesson here. So bear with me just for a moment. There's no humor in this section, but it's good to see what Paul is drawing from and what he's trying to communicate to the Philippians at this part, at this point. You may recall that God had commissioned Joshua to lead his people after Moses dies. And a part of the commissioning, Moses writes out a copy of the law that is to be read before all the people. God then appears to Moses to warn him that after his death, Israel will whore after other gods. So he is writing a song to serve as a testimony against Israel. The song found in chapter 32 is then taught to the people. After an introductory call for Israel to listen to Moses proclaiming the name of Yahweh, Moses contrasts God's faithfulness with Israel's unfaithfulness. God is the rock whose work is perfect, who conducts himself with perfect justice and without iniquity. 
By contrast, Israel deals falsely with God and did not behave as his children were to behave. Whereas Yahweh was pure, is pure, Israel is blemished. All the ways of Yahweh are just, but Israel is a crooked and a twisted generation. Such rebellion against God is all the more grievous in the light of all that he had done for them. And so if you were interested in this little exercise, you could take your Bibles, put one hand in Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 5 and Philippians 2, verse 15, and you would see what Paul is doing here. Deuteronomy, they have corrupted themselves. Philippians, do all things without grumbling, without disputing, so that you may become blameless and harmless. Israel, they are not his children. Philippians, they are children of God. Deuteronomy, Israel, because of their blemish. Philippians, without fault. Deuteronomy, a perverse and crooked generation, applies to Israel. And yet in Philippians, Paul is telling them that they are to be light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You see, this is a parallel, but it's an opposite sort of parallel. By taking his language from Deuteronomy 32.5, Paul draws a lesson from Israel's history. Moses is warning the people about their future apostasy from God by recalling how they dealt falsely with him in the wilderness. The description of of the wilderness generation is blemished and a crooked and twisted generation highlights their rebellion in stark contrast to God's faithfulness to them. By refusing to grumble like the Israelites did... Philippians 2.14, believers show themselves to be what Israel never could be, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse and twisted generation. Whereas in Deuteronomy 32.5, the crooked and twisted generation was the Israelites who perished in the wilderness. Here in Philippians 2.15, it is a wider reference to the larger world all around them. When the largely Gentile Christians in Philippi do all things without grumbling... They show themselves to be the true children of God. And what about that phrase there at the end of verse 15? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, this is the pick up your Bible part. If you would like to turn in your Bibles along with me to Daniel chapter 12 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. This is part of the prophecy of the end time given to Daniel to understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. That's what he is told in chapter 10, verse 14. But I'm going to pick up here at Daniel chapter 12 and read verses 1 through 4. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn away 
Turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Paul borrows the phrase, shine as lights here, to make a theological point. Because believers are in Christ, they are already experiencing the present, in the present, what Daniel 12.3 promised. The death and resurrection of Jesus have inaugurated the latter days as a result. Believers, both Jew and Gentile alike, are experiencing spiritual resurrection and being brought from spiritual death into spiritual life. Thus, what was revealed to Daniel hundreds of years before has begun to be experienced by New Covenant believers in anticipation of the fullness of the promise that culminates in the resurrected, glorified bodies living in a new heaven and a new earth. The language of shining lights in the world also aligns with Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6, where the servant of God is described as a light for the Gentiles so that God's salvation may go to the ends of the earth. But in considering all of that historical and theological context, let's not lose sight of the big picture of what Paul's getting at here. Paul is claiming that the purpose of doing all things without grumbling and disputing is for believers to stand out in the midst of this present evil age that remains under the power of the flesh, the sin, and the devil. Those who have been united to Christ by faith are the true children of God, not those whose hope is in their ethnicity. What the nation of Israel never could be because of their rebellion, Jesus Christ is for us. Here, He is the Son of God who obeys, whereas Adam, Israel, and all humanity have failed. That very same Jesus Christ dwells in all believers by His Holy Spirit in order to transform our lives so that we can stand out in this world to make us what Israel could never be. Christ continues His mission as the servant to extend His salvation to the ends of the earth through His transformed people. Believers do not need to await the resurrection to experience this transformation. It has already begun and is continuing in our present. What we await is the fullness experienced in the new heavens and the new earth. And such profound, and it is profound, reality should should be a source of comfort to God's people as we attempt to live as citizens in His kingdom, to live in exiles in a land that is not our home. When we stand out as believers, it is natural for us to feel marginalized, out of place, and even foolish for being so out of step with the world around us. And today it's really easy to say amen to that sort of ostracizing, is it not? But this passage reassures us that God is at work in us and through us to extend the good news of the gospel to the world around us, to be light in a darkened world. This is the why. This is the why we are to do all things without grumbling and disputing. And the final point, the mission. As Paul directs the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, assuring them that God is at work in them, enabling them to do of His good pleasure from sincere hearts, he not only provides the what we are to do, all things, And the how we are to do them without grumbling and disputing. 
and the why we are to do things this way, to shine as light in a darkened world. He also concludes this instruction with a missional context. The what, the how, and the why are wrapped up, as it were, in the mission. In verse 16 we read, Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. The Philippians shine as stars if they hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast could also be translated here, holding forth or holding out. It has the sense of holding fast in that as believers being faithful to the word of life that Paul had delivered to them, they also had the mission to communicate this to the world around them, to pass it on. And this, is, this they are to do even in the face of hostile opposition from a crooked and a perverse generation of belief around them. And so they are to shine like bright stars in this fallen world. There is a mission they are to stay faithful to. They are to hold fast. They are to be found holding fast. It is an ongoing and perpetual mission of faith. And there is no point in their life where they are not to be on mission. As Paul reflects on this, the charge he has given the Philippians to be like-minded, having the same love, to put off selfishness and esteem others better than themselves, to embrace the humility of Christ and, as he made himself of no reputation, and to work out this great, mysterious, but marvelous salvation with fear and trembling, but, but with the confidence that God is at work in them, he has zero hesitation, zero hesitation to pile on the expectation that they do all things without grumbling and disputing, knowing that in doing so, they will testify that they are true children of God. And as such, they shine as light in the darkness all around them. As John wrote to his beloved Gaius in his third epistle, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospered. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And so Paul shares this very same sentiment as God's faithful servant, Paul's mission was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to plant churches. This is his whole life, a life that he is willing to pour out on their behalf of their faithful embrace of the gospel. And so for Paul, just as it was for John, he can have no greater joy than to see his spiritual children hold fast to the faith and walk in the truth. His great hope is to meet his Savior in glory and hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, thus knowing that he had not run or labored in vain. As the Philippians were holding fast and holding forth the word of life, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very thing that Paul delivered to them, Paul could then be assured that his mission was fruitful and that his spiritual ch children we're on mission as well. And so in conclusion, 
as we consider personal and corporate applications of this text, the greatest challenge, I suspect, for us will likely be found in the call to do all things without grumbling and disputing. And not grumbling will likely be even more difficult than not disputing for most of us. Thinking back to that satire written by Lucian in the second century, what are your thoughts? He was mocking the church community. To him, the way they behaved was foolish. It was backward. They were dinosaurs of some sort. Old ladies, widows, orphans taking food to a shyster pretending to be a Christian who was thrown in jail for his false testimony? Really? To him and to his readers, their folly was obvious. And yet how distinctive, how distinctive was their behavior in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? What was the testimony of this foolish behavior? Were they being light in that moment? Do you think there was much grumbling and disputing as they rallied together to bring food to those who were in prison, to those among their number who had been persecuted, as it were, and thrown in jail for their testimony of Jesus Christ? And apparently... This was characteristic of the church, or else it wouldn't have made it into one of Lucian's mocking, satirical stories. And I believe that I can learn something from their testimony, and I suspect you can too. So the charge to me, and to you, is to seek the Lord in prayer. Let us ask the Lord our God to search our hearts and see if there is any wicked way in us. And where he finds a grumbling or a disputing spirit, where he exposes our selfishness and pride, let us repent and seek his forgiveness and hold fast to the word of life for all of life in all that we do and ask him to change the desires of our hearts that we might shine more brightly as lights in a very darkened world. And let us do all this for the sake and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our good and gracious Father, we are weak, and you are strong. We are frail, but you, O God, are omnipotent and perfect in all your ways. We give you thanks for your holy word and for the word of life. Take your word, take this particular exhortation from your word and bring specific application to each one of our lives. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the light that we are to shine before a watching world. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.